Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, October 13th. We begin with a look at the impact Canada's Indian Act had and continues to have on our nation. We hear details of a new report on the topic from Amy Swiffin, Professor of Sociology from Concordia University. Next, a new study indicates that a disparity exists when it comes to the treatment and resources surrounding breast cancer for black, indigenous and women of colour in comparison to Caucasian women. We talk about it with Michelle Audouin, co-creator of the group Uncovered, a breast recognition project. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. What better time to talk about the importance of a good bra? We speak with Ronna Johnstone of Knickers and Lace on why every woman should get a professional bra fitting. And finally, the Calgary Stampeders square off against the Hamilton Tiger Cats Friday night at McMahon Stadium. We catch up with defensive lineman Derek Wigan to tee up the game for us. Canada continues to grapple with our troubled history regarding the treatment of our Indigenous population. This morning, to talk about the long-lasting impact of the Indian Act is Amy Swiffin, who is the Associate Professor of Sociology at Concordia University and author of an article on the topic at theconversation.com. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. So in your article, you explore the lasting impact of the blackout period in Aboriginal law in Canada. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about what that blackout period was for those who don't know, and I'm sure a lot of us don't? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, Well, the term really describes uh, a period of about 25 years um, from 1927 to 1951 when there was a provision in the Indian Act, which is um, a really large piece of of legislation that's changed a lot over the years and complex and has a lot of components to it. And for that period, uh, there was a provision that effectively banned lawyers from representing um, Indigenous peoples in court. Um, The technicalities of the provision uh, uh, was complex, but that was the effect. Professor, you mentioned that the period ended 1951, so we're talking just over 70 years ago. Can you explain Mm -hmm. the uh, impact over that uh, past 70 years and how it's been seen? Yeah, well, you know, um, to be honest, it's something that hasn't uh, really been studied um, yet in in Canada. It's uh, something where where I'm part of a research team and we're starting a project or uh, planning a, a project to look at this period and to understand its impact um, on Canadian law and on how Indigenous people basically did um, uh, political activism. So, um, you know, we do know that it basically stopped uh, Indigenous land claims and the like development of Aboriginal law in Canada for that time period. There's really no cases um, that happen in that time period, whereas before there were many and after they start up again. So um, we can see there's like this absence of activity, but we're going to look more closely and understand sort of what was going on kind of uh, at this time. So that's what I was going to ask you, Professor, the reasoning behind restricting legal representation. So was it that Indigenous people were then unable to fight back and try to reclaim their land? Well, I mean, when you look at what was happening, it, it, you know, that is the way it appears. There was a lot of activity happening, um, you know, kind of intensifying into the 1920s. You know, a lot of Indigenous groups um, across Canada were mobilizing and using the legal system in different ways. And, uh, you know, looking at the historical records, there's definitely evidence that this was, um, you know, a frustration. And this was at the height of assimilation as a policy goal. 
And so it really seemed counter to that, right? Because this was sort of Indigenous people wanting to maintain their jurisdiction as opposed to assimilate. So it was a frustration and also like counter to the policy at the time. Um, and so it, uh, you know, sort of came to a head um, and the government's response to the growing legal agitation was, was the, the ban. Speaking with uh, Professor Amy Swiffin, a professor of sociology at Concordia University. Amy, I, I, I don't recall ever hearing about the yeah. Indian Act's blackout period through my education or even a, this is the first time I'm learning about it today on the program with you. Am I alone? Is this something that not many Canadians know about? Uh, probably not many know about it. No, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I work in the area. I'm a, a researcher in the area, and I'm aware of it. I mean, you know, people who work in the area are aware of it. But in terms of really thinking about it as a period of of, of history and, and impacting the present, you know, the development of law and things like that, um, you know, it's a new area of research, so it's not surprising to me that it isn't something that's widely known, although once you think about it, it does kind of, you know, you kind of wonder why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting, um, it's sort of obvious when you think about it, but uh, yeah, no, I'm not surprised to hear that. So many things that are not part of our education that, you know, are part of our history in this country that we've missed out on and hopefully will be added into the curriculum for sure. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about the blackout period and the Indian Act itself and how, you know, they have ultimately shaped Canada's relationship with Indigenous people then, but, but I, I would think now still too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Indian Act still exists, and it's still, um, you know, a central piece of, or a central piece of uh, legislation that really, like, it's more an administration regime because it it created um, a whole uh, alternative form of really political organization that it imposed on Indigenous communities. So, you know, the whole um, rationale for the Indian Act was really to manage and, you know, kind of shape, contain, and assimilate um, the Indigenous peoples of Canada or in in Canada. And uh, over time, of course, that's um, shifted in some ways as, you know, Indigenous self-determination has um, kind of come more to the fore. But fundamentally, that Indian Act apparatus still represents that colonial relationship, between, uh, you know, the federal government and Indigenous peoples. Very interesting topic. Thanks for your time this morning, Professor. We appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Amy Swiffin, Associate Professor of Sociology at Concordia University. I, for one, Sue, uh, have learned so much more than I'd ever known about the plight of Canadian uh, Indigenous folks out there who have been through it. And this is one more piece of the puzzle, and it makes you wonder... How much more is out there? How much more did we not know? And the other thing is, you think about a term that we haven't used much until the past five or ten years, or maybe I just haven't been in that world, which is generational trauma Mm -hmm. and the impacts and the effects these sorts of things can have for the rest of your life and for your children and your children's children. So here we go, one more piece. And, you know, I said it was 70 years ago to 1951, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not that far away. 
that uh, these uh, you know people on trial were not even allowed to have a lawyer represent them. And that we don't learn that in our right. own history. Yeah. We learn more yeah. about American history than we do about Canadian history in the schools. And that Good really, point. I mean, I think it's slowly changing now, but boy, we need to catch up for sure. Um, you know, it just it astounds well, me and I'm finding I'm finding when you say the catch-up, how quickly when implemented in the school system, my kids, uh, my teens, uh, not so much. Well, even even my uh, five-year-old in grade one was she came and said, "We learned about indigenous people, indigenous people," and uh, she was very much into the orange mm-hmm. shirt day. But uh, certainly, my teens have dug down and learned a lot more. But for the simple fact, when I say a lot more, we I can't remember learning all that much uh-huh. at all no. about indigenous Canadians. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Are black, indigenous, and people of color underrepresented in the breast cancer community? This morning, we're hearing the story of a survivor, Michelle O'Doyne, co-chair of the group Rethink Breast Cancer's Equity, Diversity, Inclusion Working Group, and co-creator of Uncovered, a breast recognition project. Good morning to you, Michelle. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Can you break down for us what's different for someone diagnosed with breast cancer who's part of the BIPOC community? Are there differences? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's there's lots of unique needs that, you know, p- people, black, indigenous and people of color have. And th- it leads to a lot of, you know, the feelings of distress, not being seen and not hurt. You know, uh, people with melanated skin, they may develop keloids, their skins may scar differently. Um, you know, there's a lot of mistrust with the healthcare system. You know, this our healthcare system is based on a Eurocentric white bias. Um, and as though, you know, as Canada is a multicultural population, the healthcare system, the textbooks, what we're talking about, uh, you know, race-based data and the absence of it, you know, a lot of people are left on the margin, not the margins, the, you know, the outside of this system and they don't see themselves represented. Michelle, can you share a bit about your experience with breast cancer and, and its impact? Yeah, absolutely. So in the spring of 2017, when I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, I began inquiring about what my surgical options were. I knew it was something that I wanted to have done. Uh, and one thing that came abundantly clear was that there were no images of women who looked like me. So I was being asked to make a life-altering decision you know, uh, having a mastectomy and reconstructing my breasts without actually seeing what it would look like on someone like me. So, you know, I was attending the patient information sessions, reaching out to the nurses, the plastic surgeons, and everybody assured me, don't worry, it'll look good on people with your skin. It looks good on black people. But it's really, really hard to, to feel confident in that decision because you don't see it. You don't see it anywhere. And so all I was being presented was were images of white people. Um, I attended national events, and again, I continued this search for images of women who looked like me because I had specific questions about scarring, and I know my body from growing up that my scars can be quite pronounced, and I wanted to know how my healthcare team was going to take care of those scars. And so it, it led to a depression. I completely dissociated myself from my, re- my, my reconstructed breasts. I never saw my body as a whole. I, I couldn't look at them. Um, and so that was a heavy burden and weight to carry, you know, um, for a very long time without any clear answers. So can you tell us, I know you're uh, one of the co-creators of Uncovered, a breast recognition project. Can you tell us what that entails and what the aim is? Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, as I was trying to process my de- my depression and those feelings of not being seen and unheard, 
I, I, I turned to journaling and I started writing down, you know, the interactions that I had with my, my healthcare team and at the hospital. And I started to come up with ideas of what would I want? You know, if my sister were to be diagnosed, heaven forbid, my cousin, my brother, my uncle, you know, anybody that's close to me that's a person of color uh, or indigenous person, what would I want for them? And I, and, and so it, it started shaping itself into something. I wanted to see the beauty. I wanted it to be authentic. I wanted to see women's scars and have their stories heard. So it was my idea that I presented and it became a collaborative project in partnership with Rethink Breast Cancer. So uncovered um, the resource that focuses on the breast cancer experiences of black, indigenous and people of color. We use powerful imaging and storytelling and it really shines a light on the physical and emotional scars of breast cancer, cultural barriers and health equity. Michelle, I'm just and on the website and I, it's rethinkbreastcancer.com and the images there are beautiful and the stories of women and their breast cancer journeys and, and women of colour, you don't really think about it. Well, I as a white woman wouldn't think about it because I'm seeing the images of people that look like me, but to not see images of people that look like you or anyone else of colour, I, I would imagine it's got to be really daunting. So I love this project. It's brilliant. Again, we'll send people to rethinkbreastcancer.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks. Michelle O'Dwyer is the co-chair of the group Rethink Breast Cancer and their Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Working Group, also the co-creator of Uncovered. Seven nineteen now, and it is National No Bra Day kind of sounds like a a light and fun day but it really actually is a great time for women and for men to learn about breast health and the bra is part of that topic to help with some knowledge we're joined this morning by ronna johnstone who is the owner of knickers and lace in willow park village hi ronna how are you Good morning. I'm wonderful. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. Okay, you and I know, Andy may not, but most women whip their bra (laughs) off as soon as they get home, but few of us leave the house without one. I've heard stats that majority of women are actually wearing the wrong size bra. Do you find that to be true? Yes, absolutely. Why Uh, so? Because we don't get taught (laughs) at an early age about breast awareness and health. And consequently, we just go into the local stores and buy something that we think fits. And we wear the same bra for year after year after year, not knowing that our bodies are changing. Everything changes in a woman's body, especially monthly, weekly, yearly. So we end up going back to the old faithful. Mm. Rana, uh, my wife is a huge convert and she's a big fan of knickers and lace. She went in there and... uh, had the treatment and said, this is great. I've tried something. Yeah, a proper through. fitting, you oh, mean. Yeah, it was the treatment I mean. you're referring Absolutely. to. Yeah. And, and <laughs> the bra fitting treatments. Too. That's right. Thank you. I'm talking about something I know a lot about. Uh, absolutely <laughs> not. I am foreign. This is a new water to me. Uh, but what goes into that? I mean, I think outside looking in, you think, well, this is going to take a long time. How long does something like this take? Can you walk us through the process? You know, it can take anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour, depending on the person and what they expect out of us. There's a lot of people that come in thinking that they want one thing and leave totally with something else. It's everybody's body is different. Our shapes are different. Um, Where our breasts are on our body is different. So there's a lot that goes into it actually. And that's where our knowledge comes into play. 
we have to know the bras that we have, the styles, the different shapes that they can um, make for each and every woman. Rana, why, how does the bra and breast health, how, how do those two things equate? I mean, I know the answer basically, but if, for, for those who may not, and for guys particularly who might be listening, why? What's, what's important about it? Well, breasts are heavy. They're tissue that literally are hanging off of our body unless you're young and perky. But that can cause anything from back problems to um, self-confidence problems. Once you are in a proper fitting bra, you look more proportional. You look taller and thinner. Your breasts are where they're supposed to be. And that in itself can be a big, huge confidence booster. Just a quick question here. We have a question in from Carmen on the text line, which is ask her, please, if they have a good bra solution for prosthesis. Yes, we have a bit of it. We sell a few bras that are made specifically for prosthesis, but we find that we can take any bra in the store that if if a woman has lost one breast, that we can take one bra that they had from before and put um, a pocket in the other side so that they're exactly like they were before. We have um, a lot of knowledge, and we team up with Knitted Knockers of Calgary, or of Alberta, sorry, that um, make some options available to a lot more women than we had before. Although we don't physically fit prosthesis right now, um, we do encounter people every day that have gone through breast cancer, and we try to help them out as much as we can. Rana, best website for folks to find out more about Knickers and Lace and what you have to offer? Knickersandlace.net. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be celebrating National No Bra Day at about 5.05 this afternoon. I will. I know you will. Uh, Rana Johnstone is the owner of Knickers and Lace. Again, knickersandlace.net. Tomorrow after the bye week, it's uh, back at it for the Calgary Stampeders game day. Your Stampeders kicking off against the Hamilton Tiger Cats Friday night. To help set the stage, we are joined by number 97 for your Stampeders defensive lineman, Derek Wigan. Good morning to you, Derek. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. I know that you've got uh, some work ahead of you. You're a busy guy, but we appreciate it. So you and the Stamps uh, last time uh, came away with a narrow victory against the Tie Cats. What's the key to having another successful, uh, you know, uh, round with the Tie Cats tomorrow night? We just got to execute, you know. Uh, that first game with them, you know, is like a tail two halves. Like the first half where, like, you know, anything that could go wrong went wrong. Then uh, the second half we executed. We uh, know what we had. Nothing at played with our uh, hair on fire and we came out with the win. So we just got to have that mentality for all 60 minutes. You guys seem to really kind of be gelling as a team, as individual players kind of coming together. Derek, is that what it feels like in the dressing room? And how important is that going into each game? You know, like uh, the season's a journey, right? So, like, each week you learn more and more about uh, the team as a whole and each other. So, yeah, we're coming we're coming together at a good time. You know, like this is it's October, getting into November, playoff time. So you want to be ascending at this point. You don't want to be having any hiccups. Let's uh, talk about the importance. A lot of people mistake me as a pro athlete, Derek, as in much you've ever seen, but it's worth looking at online. It really um, is. I can't understand, you know, not only uh, preparing for these games, 
but you know, executing at that level, the importance when you're on the field of the fans. What does that feel like when the fans are screaming and yelling and hooting and hollering? Uh, it's it's unique, like uh, especially home at, here at home in Calgary. You know, like our fans support us, so, provide so much great support. Where you know, like we're making plays, like we feed off them, they feed off us. So be able to like you know have like create like an intimidating home field advantage for ourselves, and then you know when you go on the road, like we travel pretty well. So you know, there's always like when you look in the crowd, like there's always some there's always some red and white in the crowd. So but no, the fans are important just to help. You know, just help get the energy going. You can feel it when the fans are really excited for a game. Derek, as a D-man, when you're lined up, what is it like just, you know, before that that ball is snapped? Is it is it still as an exciting feeling as it was when you began? Oh, it's uh, definitely less nervous. Definitely less <laughs> nervous than when I first started. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's a little calm before the storm. You know, you kind of you go through every scenario you can pre uh, during the practice week. And then when you go in the game, it's just kind of like you know, like you what you everything you studied happens, and you know it's a great feeling when you, you when you feel uh, mentally prepared for the game and every and everything's unfolding. You're just able to just play freely, not having to like overthink certain situations. We've seen your play. We know the name, but I was kind of shocked when I'm looking at uh, you know some of the stats here, Derek, in that played your first game as a Stampeder. Well, training camp 2014, first game in 2015, I believe. Is it hard yeah. for you to look back and say, okay, this is eight years in, I'm one of the vets now? Uh, no, not at all. Like, um, it's, uh, it's throughout the years, like, I got drafted in 2014. If you see my 2014 uh, picture versus uh, now, it's a pretty big difference. But, um, no, it's just kind of another journey. And, like, mm. I've had great teammates along the way and just kind of, as those guys move on to other places, and then you're like, okay, yeah, I guess I got to kind of step up to avoid some of those guys left. And, you know, it's like we have a great group great group of uh, people here. Uh, so it's like it makes it easy to be like, no, like, yeah, I'm 30 now. So, like, I'm not – It's uh, I'm playing with guys that were, like, mate, like uh, that were in high school when I started playing, uh, <laughs> playing with the dance. So it's pretty funny. Awesome. Well, we'll be cheering you on. We expect a really fun, great game, of course, with the Stampeders coming out on top. Thank you so much for joining us, Derek. Appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you guys so much. Have a great morning. You too. That's Derek Wigan, number 97 defensive lineman with your Calgary Stampeders.